Well, it's good to see all of you today. I'm thankful that we have some sunshine to celebrate today. I feel like, boy, we've waited long enough for it. It's wonderful. I'm so thankful. Last week, I started a series called Attitudes and Emotions Series, and, and uh, it has caused, I've had some interesting text messages and emails from different people that said that They've had some interesting conversations around their dinner table and with their family as it relates to different things, and, and I'm thankful, I'm thankful that uh, some of the things that take place here in the, in the church that God begins to do with our hearts makes it into conversations within our homes. I think that that's a healthy thing. Uh, the, the theme verse that we have been dealing with is found in Romans chapter 12, and today as you're turning to that, our, the, the thoughts today are going to be bad attitudes that Jesus confronted bad attitudes that Jesus confronted. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it's, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, as we approach you this morning, we recognize that you are constantly as our Savior and as our Lord, leading us and working within us to develop us to be more like you. You have told us that when we come in contact and intersect your grace and we invite you into our life, that we become a new creature and that our nature is instantly changed. And yet, Lord, through the process of sanctification, we grow in you. And I pray that today, as we are confronted with your word, that your Holy Spirit would be allowed into every room of our life, even those that we have locked out of fear, that you might not like what you find there, and that as we yield those to you, you will begin to develop us so that our nature and yours become more in common as we follow you. And so, Father, we pray this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have any of you ever said something and had your words come back to bite you? Okay, just was wondering about that because I, I preached a message last week about bad attitudes jumping up and hitting you in the face. And I was golfing this week, and I was golfing in, in the foursome that I was with with uh, some men that were from our church that were here last week. And for those of you that aren't golfers, you won't understand this at all. And for those of you that are, you will completely understand. But I had just hit a series of shots that were all really, really bad. Uh, and so I was writing down this enormous number on my scorecard. And for you basketball fans, a big number is a good thing. And golf, it's a bad thing. And, and so I was writing down this enormous number, feeling very disappointed in myself. And as I'm walking back to the golf cart, I looked at the men I was playing with, and I went, <laughs> To which... Don Jones happened to look at me and say, Pastor, did a bad attitude just jump up and hit you right in the face? <laughs> and I recognize that there are times when our words come back and hit us. I trust that as it relates to our attitudes, that we have come to a place in our life where we have said, Lord, I want to approach you with open hands. I don't want you just to deal with my sin and remove them, but there's parts of my nature that are so easily conformed to the world's nature that I need you to put your fingers in those and massage them and remake them so that they look more like you and less like me. In fact, when I read in Psalms this week, I was reading out of Psalm 19:12. David asks this question, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. In other words, he's looking at himself and he's going, 
if I look at myself, I always see myself in a better light than I really am. Who is it that can reveal to us my hidden faults, my, my secret faults? And so he begins to conclude that there are some areas of our life that are known only to us and to God. And sometimes our secret faults can relate to those areas which are very glaring to someone else, but they may be perfectly oblivious to us because we see ourselves always in the best light and oftentimes we look at others always in the worst light and we can pick out things in them that we don't like. And in the message this morning, bad attitudes that Jesus confronted we are, we are asked almost, it calls us to pray this prayer. Lord, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Because if we have this attitude, then it begins to allow God to work on areas of our lives that he becomes annoyed with us at. They grate on us. And so, now I am not a psychologist. And as I speak on this theme, I am only comfortable in addressing Issues that I know can be anchored in Scripture. And so there's a scriptural anchor for each of the things that I want to say today because it would be really tempting and it would be really easy for me to think through all of the particular idiosyncrasies that other people have that just annoy me or that really grate on me. But I would be unable to think about the idiosyncrasies that I may have that bother you or bother other people. So rather than doing that, I want to anchor what the Scripture has to say about our attitudes and the way that we can address these with the help of the Holy Spirit by anchoring each of these in some Scripture. Now, there are five times in the Gospel of Mark, for example, that we are told that Jesus was indignant or that he was angry. And he rebukes people on occasion, and there are other occasions when, when he becomes angry that he engages people in dialogue where it is very obvious that he completely disagrees with the attitude that they are displaying and that is coming across to him. And as I thought about that, I thought, how interesting that this perfect man, this sinless man, can address individuals about things in their life that he does not like, but he does it without sinning. And I said, that's the way you need to approach each of us, Lord. That there are things in my life that I recognize are hindering me. They cap my ability to grow in you, my attitudes that keep me from becoming everything. And I need you to address these in such a way that I can become more like you. And so in your bulletin, there's a list of, of attitudes that Jesus confronted. And I recognize as you look at that, you're going, great. There's two points and 13 subpoints. We're going to be here all day. I promise you. I promise you, you will not, and that we will go through these because a lot of these things are not going to lead a, a lot of explanation because we know exactly what they mean. But here are some of the attitudes that Jesus confronted. The first one is an attitude of a closed mind. And let me anchor this, this thought in a scripture, but before I do that, let me, let me just say, in each of these, there's generally something that we recognize that demonstrates this attitude in the way that somebody might say something. In other words, if you say things like, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Or, I know what I believe and I don't care what the facts say. Then chances are you may be battling an attitude of, a, of an unusually closed mind that the Lord may want to begin to address with you. So where does this come from in Jesus' life? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6 because in the first six verses there's this description that Jesus gives. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. 
accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So Jesus goes home goes to his hometown, and instantly is confronted with people who have a very closed mind about him. They look at him and say, I know your family. I know where you come from. I know your brothers. I know your sisters. I know the attitude of your family. And and in all of this, they begin to close down the things that Jesus could do because they had a closed attitude about who he was And they redefined him by that. Even though the scripture clearly tells us that he was presenting them with new evidence as to his power, as to his wisdom, as to his ability to teach, he even found some people that he could lay hands on and heal them. And in spite of all of the things that they are seeing and all of the evidence that Jesus is providing that he is the Son of God, with a closed mind, they looked at him and said, I don't care what you do or what you say. My mind is made up about you, and you will never be anything else but what I have believed originally. So Jesus, in this town, shows His attitude by saying, in his hometown, a prophet is without honor. In his own country. And I was not able to do many things I wanted to do because you had a closed mind as it relates to me. There are some areas in our lives where I want you to know it's healthy to have a closed mind. I have had my mind made up about some things. I have a closed mind as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know the evidence is in and my mind is settled and you will not change my mind as it relates to Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God. My mind is closed on that because I've gotten the facts. My mind is closed on the Ten Commandments as a moral code. So having a closed mind in in some of those areas of truth is not a bad thing. But sometimes we close our minds to things that Jesus wants us to have an open mind to. Some of you have closed your mind to the attitude that God might be able to do something more with you than you have allowed him to. There's some things that the Lord would look in your life and said, I want to stir these things up, and you've closed your mind about yourself, and you said, I am who I am, and I'll never be anything different, and not even God can change me. And you've closed your mind, and by doing so, you have effectively capped your ability to be used of the Lord because you've just closed your mind that I am who I am. Others of you have closed your mind as to the abilities of people around you. You have looked at them, and because of an interaction you had with them, you have pigeonholed them into a certain place and a certain thing, and you will never give them another chance to be anything different than what you originally decided. Some of you make very, very quick decisions. People have just a very short period of time to make an impression on you, and if it's a bad impression, you pigeonhole them, and you've made up your mind. 
Some of you have suffered the consequences of having people make up their mind about you before they had all the facts. Some of you here today have a closed mind toward God. You have determined in your life that you will do what you want when you want. Because if you admit that Jesus is Savior and that He is God, it means that you also have to submit to His moral code. And you know it will change your life to have to admit that there is a God that loves you and died for you. So you've closed your mind. You don't care about the facts. I want to do what I want to do. And I have closed my mind. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus confronts you and says, that attitude is one that needs confronted. Don't close your mind to the things of God or to the people. The second attitude that Jesus confronts is a demeaning attitude. The phrase that you will hear from people that may be demonstrating a demeaning attitude is this. You will never amount to anything. How many of you have had that attitude or those words spoken to you sometime through your life? It amazes me how many people, you know what? We forget a lot of the good things that people say about us, but we never forget the demeaning things that people deposit into our lives. Those somehow seem to be planted deep and fester within us, and it affects who we are. And God, through Jesus, began to directly confront those that had a demeaning attitude. We can even read in this passage that we just read, the people in his hometown are looking at Jesus, and while he's doing these things which would change their mind as to his, his saviorhood, his godhood, his omnipotence, they're looking at him and they're, they're going, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? And by saying that, what they were doing was demeaning Jesus because his hometown never bought into the fact that Mary was a virgin birth of Jesus. They never bought that. They never bought into the angel Gabriel and the story that he told. And as a result of that, they constantly looked at Jesus and Mary and Joseph and his family, and they looked at him and considered him to be an illegitimate child. And so the townsfolk never bought into him. They had pigeonholed him. They had demeaned him. That's who he was, and that's who he would always be. And Jesus knew what it was like to have the pressure of expectations on him of people saying that you will never amount to anything. In fact, your life is probably a lie because you have declared yourself to be something that you are not. Negative expressions and attitudes never build people up. The only thing that negative expressions build up is anger and resentment in the person that is expressing them, and it demoralizes the person that is having them expressed to them. I realize in normal human living, that there are going to be times when we slip up and we say things to somebody or about somebody that we shouldn't do. But a steady stream of those things coming out of your mouth that is constantly beating people down is an attitude that Jesus wants to address in your life because if you are constantly demeaning people, then you have capped your ability to be like Jesus. And he wants to take you and remove that conformed nature that he talked about, which is a nature of the world, and he wants to transform you into somebody that lets those old attitudes die so that new attitudes of Jesus may be able to grow within you. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 puts it eloquently. It says, An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Put-downs are really saying to people, I don't believe in you. And if you don't believe in a person, 
Somebody else is going to have to believe in them and lift them up so that they can become who God is calling them to be. We all come along in life, and sooner or later, some of us have others that will step alongside of you and put an arm around you and say, I believe in you, and suddenly that person's influence in our life begins to grow. So if you've been battling a demeaning attitude, then you need to know that your influence in people's life has about shriveled up. But if you will cheer people up, God will grow that within you. Proverbs 16, 24 says, Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. I love the wording of this because it indicates to me that words can have an inward effect on people. Not just an attitudinal effect, but an inward effect. That when you begin to build people up around you, when you look for things in their life that you can elevate, it becomes something that's sweet and nourishes their soul and also it affects their bones. I believe that people who have been constantly demeaned or those who constantly demean are living around, walking around with a sickness in them that infects them and infests them. And there's healing that comes to those who will speak pleasant words. So here's what I would ask. If the language that we are giving to the significant people in our life is more corrective than it is complementary, then we are out of balance. And we are destroying our relationships if we allow this demeaning attitude to continually elevate itself in our conversations. And also, we are contributing to the destruction of that individual that we are demeaning. What we don't understand is if we allow this attitude to go unchecked, we are destroying ourselves in the process because people will dismiss you and not want to be around you and you've lost your ability to influence because you are demeaning. Third attitude that Jesus addresses is a judgmental attitude. It's an attitude that says there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Jesus got this from the scribes and the Pharisees all the time and, and it finally came to a head in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 15, when they are asking Jesus a lot of questions and they're trying to trick him and they're trying to, to get him in a situation where they can find that he's not being truthful and finally he just addresses them and he looks at them and says, why are you trying to trap me? What's interesting to me is that Jesus was the perfect man. He was the ideal person. And if people could criticize him, how are you and I who are less than perfect ever going to get away in life without being criticized ourselves? Jesus was perfect, and yet they tried to trap him. And so Jesus begins to address this judgmental attitude in, in each of our lives. And what happens is the reason that this elevates itself is because each of us have this mental ideal of what we think other people should look like. Whenever we look at them and, and we are disappointed in their behavior, or disappointed, it's because we had a measure that they didn't get to. And as a result of that, we feel quite comfortable in pointing out to whomever we may be with how disappointed we are in them because this is what I thought that should look like and they didn't reach it. Now, here's where it's dangerous. This manifests itself in our homes all the time. When I end up having conversations with husbands and wives and we talk about the disappointments, it's because oftentimes somebody will say, but I thought that she was going to be, and then she, he sets out an ideal. And because I married a human being that is incapable of perfection, she has fallen short, and as a result of that, I judge her. 
she's not making me happy. Or a wife will say, I thought when I married him, this was what I'm getting. It took 10 minutes of marriage to recognize he's not perfect. He doesn't reach this. And as a result of that, there's a judgmental attitude that suddenly becomes to a place where you say, I recognize you don't have the ability to live a life that's going to make me happy. And we do this with others. We become discontented because we realize that we don't have the ideal husband, the ideal wife, the ideal child, the ideal church, or the ideal pastor. And we have these ideals in our minds of what we think it should look like, and we judge everybody if they don't reach those. It's a manufactured, synthetic kind of substance that prevents us from enjoying life as it is because we've got this person and they aren't what we think they should be, and we sit in judgment on that person because they're not our ideal. And if we could get rid of our ideal and take that person as they are and begin to extend grace to one another, the whole circumstance and environment of our homes or our workplaces would begin to change because none of us are perfect. None of us will reach the ideal of the expectations of everybody around us. And the person who does away with this ideal that if you don't reach it then somehow you live in a constant disappointment with them have allowed an idol into their life the idol of perfection the funny thing is is that those that hold this idol up of perfection that i expect my children my spouse or those around me to be perfect always give themselves grace when they are not but won't extend that same grace to other people. Paul talks about this to the Philippians when he says, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation. So here he's saying there is a mold and a model that the world wants to force you into, but because of Christ, you do not have to fit that mold. I'm a transforming God that will change you so that the mold of the world, which is depraved, does not have to be the mold that you fit into. And then he goes on to say, in this generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. I, I think it's amazing that the shine that Paul speaks of directly relates to the lack of complaining and the lack of arguing, which are the manifestations of those that constantly demonstrate an attitude of judgment. And he says this is an attitude that God will confront through Jesus Christ and that when we become conformed to him, transformed by his power, our, our ability to judge others will shrivel and die. Ultimately, the person who sits in judgment on other people because becomes unable to see their own faults because whatever deficiency is always in the other person's life, it's their fault. That's why Jesus said, you pick the speck out of your own eye or out of others' eye, but you can't see the log in your own. Because a judgmental person, in the last analysis, because, becomes unable to see themselves totally blinded to their own image. The critical judgmental person will never be happy. Proverbs 17, 1 says, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. In other words, if your home is filled with a judgmental attitude, then there's always going to be strife. Or Proverbs 15, 17 says, Better a meal of vegetables 
where there is love than a fattened calf where there's hatred. I just want all of you to know that are, that are vegetarians and vegans that if there's peace in your home, you can eat meat. <laughs> that was a horrible scripture twisting that I just did there. But for those of us who love meat, it seems as if, the, you know, never mind, I won't say any more. But Jesus directly confronted the judgmental attitude. And he says that if you will allow me to transform that attitude, what I will do is transform the environments in which you live. The next attitude he addressed was a holier-than-thou attitude. The holier-than-thou attitude is represented by people who say, I am right and you're wrong. I am better than you. That's the attitude Jesus got when he was eating with sinners and the Pharisees were looking at him going, this man eats with sinners. That was not a compliment that they were paying to Jesus. They were saying if he is as holy as he says he is, he would stay away from people like that. They had completely lost fact of the fact that he had come to save sinners, to redeem people. Luke talks about the Pharisee who goes to the middle of the square and he looks at all of those that aren't as good as him and he stands and he says this prayer out loud. I thank God that I'm not like any of these people around me. The, the height of arrogance that comes out of a prayer of somebody who is holier than thou and demonstrates it to everybody. Have you noticed that people that have a tendency to be judgmental and the people that have a tendency to be holier than thou are kind of the same people? These are, these are fine shades of difference between these attitudes that Jesus confronted. And here's the issue. Sin is so persuasive that it slips into us even in our holy moments. Just the moment we think, I finally got it together. And I'm, oh God, did you see how I overcame that this week? Oh, I wish other people could overcome those things like I did this week. And in a holy moment, boom, it slides right in. Because we feel so good and satisfied and in that moment, we suddenly put everybody else down. And it's insidious. So we ought not to compare ourselves to others or look self-righteously down at somebody in the body of Christ or out of the body of Christ because that attitude really, really frustrated Jesus. And he said to his disciples, the attitude that we need to have constantly is I have come to be among you as one who serves. And servants always humble themselves, and they're not better than anybody else. The fifth attitude that he confronted was the attitude of misplaced priorities. The phrase that we would often use for this is when we're asked to do something, whether it be by somebody else or by the Lord, we say, I will do it, but I've got to do this first. I have a list of things. Lord, I will ultimately get to what you want me to do, but I've got these things first, and instantly we have misplaced the priorities and there's an attitude that arises up within us. The Pharisees were doing this as it related to their traditional ceremonial washing before they would eat. They, they made sure they washed their cups and their plates and they washed their hands and they made a big show of it. And, and Jesus was looking at them saying, you guys, you guys have it all wrong. You're, you're putting a priority in washing the outside, but the inside of you is rotten. You're making a big show of how clean your cups and plates are and, and how you do all this stuff and, and everybody looks at you and, and thinks about how great you are, but I see something on the inside which is totally different than what you're showing on the outside. You've misplaced your priorities. It had even gone so far in, in, in Mark chapter 7 where he's talking about you have misplaced your priorities to even take care of your family because at that time they didn't have social security and retirement plans, children, 
and, and, and grandchildren took care of the grandparents until they no longer were on this earth. But the money that they had set aside for that, he talked about, you've taken that, and in a great show, you have brought it to the temple, but you needed that money to take care of your family. You've misplaced your priorities in all of this. And we need to ask in our own life, how is my attitude of delayed obedience to the Lord affecting my ability to grow in Him? That when He asks me something, my priority is I will satisfy myself first, and if there's anything left of my energy, then I will obey you, Lord. I will live my life as a selfish individual, and then when I'm done doing what I want to do, if there's anything left, I will give it to you. If that attitude is within you, then the Lord wants you to know that that attitude of misplaced priorities is one that he confronts and wants to change within you. Because that attitude does not reflect the building of a relationship that God wants to have with each of us as his children and the significant others in our life. And so he asks us to redirect our priorities. The next attitude that he addresses is a negative attitude. I won't ask if any of you know negative people because we all would probably raise our hand. If people, some of you grew up in homes where the, the answer, you knew before you even asked mom and dad a question, the answer was going to be no. You could even ask something right and it would still be no just because that's what they got used to saying. It was no. Now, I'm not saying that no is never a wrong answer. Sometimes no is the right answer. However, I believe that what the Lord wants us to begin to understand is that we as children of God can look for ways to say yes to one another. That we can be positive with one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. In other words, we serve a Savior that when we come to him, loves to say, yes. I'm a God that says, yes. I'm a Savior that says, yes. I desire my promises to be at work within your life. And so there's an attitude when we have become transformed by the power of God that looks for ways to say yes so that we can drain the negative attitude out of our life. The seventh attitude is that of indecision and apathy. Jesus constantly was at work confronting the Pharisees that wouldn't make up their mind or they couldn't make up their mind. Jesus was talking about them in Matthew 11, 16 to 19, where he talks about the Pharisees that were hard to please. You could do all these things and they would never be happy. They would never be pleased with you. And he says it's like a children's playing game. They're, they're pantomiming a game in the marketplace. And he said they piped to you they, they, and you wouldn't mourn. They played and you wouldn't dance. You refused to be happy. You refused to be sad. Your life was dominated by indecision and apathy. You just sat there. And you wouldn't engage in life in all the things that you could do. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to act. In other words, there's an activity that God expects of us that we would avoid the attitude of, I'm not going to do anything. 
says, do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow. When you have it now. In other words, live a life of decision. When you feel prompted to do something of the Lord, do it. Don't sit back and just stay on the sideline. Decide. Involve. There are other attitudes that I could have spent time with today that I believe Jesus confronted. And let me just briefly mention them to you. Jesus got after the disciples for their lack of faith. Persistent lack of faith bothers Jesus. On one occasion, he got after them because they were slow learners. Now, I, I was listening. As I wrote this down, I felt such conviction because there are times in my life I'm a slow learner. Maybe I'm the only one in this room. But he addressed that. Jesus was upset with Peter for his self-centeredness. He was especially hard on people who were bad examples. He said, man, if you're going to live a bad example, it's better than a millstone be hung around your neck and you thrown into the, into the water rather than being a bad example to people. He was upset and he rebuked people that were harsh. He, he was upset with people that thought that children should not be around Jesus, that were trying to keep them from him. He was upset with non-productivity. In fact, if you have been given talents by the Lord and you're not using them for him, it made him mad because the one talent person who just buried their talent, he was so upset with, he took from them what they had and gave it to others. So inactivity and non-productivity with what God has given to you is an attitude that he addressed. And he was especially upset with religious people who used him for their own profit, who used him for their own good, who sold in the temple took advantage of other people in a place that was meant for holiness. And so here's a sampling of bad attitudes that Jesus confronted. So how do we break those? How do we break these attitudes? Steps to transformation. Number one, become aware of them. I have discovered this week as I was preparing to preach this that God is, is exceptionally good when given the opportunity at showing us exactly where we need help. In fact, if you pray to him and you say, Lord, if there are any of these attitudes that are in my life, would you show them to me? You better sit back and get ready because he is not going to delay, but will begin to recognize things in your life where you've demonstrated these. So you have to know they exist. And by the way, this is not to elbow the person next to you and say, there's about four of those that I just was listening to that you have. Honest admission that we are the one that are in need of the transforming work of God is important. So we ask him, Lord, do I have these attitudes in my life that just annoy other people? That I could be a better influence for you if you would deal with those. Become aware because we all have them. Secondly, take responsibility for our need to change. It is not anybody else's responsibility to change you. It is your responsibility to stand before the Lord and ask him to change you. In fact, if you believe that your happiness is dependent upon another person, then you are never going to be happy. There's not another person created in this world that is capable of making you happy. You have to take advantage and responsibility for your own need to change before the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the joy of the Lord comes when we open our hands to him and say, Lord, here I am. I'm guilty. Here are the attitudes of my life that I have been battling. And today, I do not want these to be conformed to an old nature. I want the transformation of your nature to be at work within me. So I come. These are my attitudes, Lord. Work within me. And then ask God for help. 
what you will find is those in the world without Christ that constantly are talking about and proclaiming and teaching about how to change yourself, there's a cap to that because there's a difference in doing something for yourself and being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you ask God to help you, what you're doing is, number one, you're coming with the recognition that we need help. And whenever you humble yourself before God, he will always respond to that. But when you ask him to help, what happens is his nature, which became your nature when he made you a brand new creature in Christ, when you accepted him, is free to be unleashed within you that can begin to scrub the walls of those old rooms that you have locked. And as he begins to take that, the cleansing power of the chlorine, of the blood of Jesus Christ, will take the old attitude and it will drain away, be washed away, and removed because God is helping you because it's his desire to bring you into a place where you're like him. Fourthly, seek forgiveness. We need to seek forgiveness. Listen to me closely. Oftentimes, the best way to seek forgiveness is not verbally. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We are so accustomed to seeing people get caught in things, whether it's in the media or politics or whatever it is, and they, out of a political correct nature, will stand before people and they will give an apology that we all know was not sincere. They said the right words so that they can hit whatever points they needed to hit, but we have grown cynical of words as it relates to apologies. So here's what I ask. Let your apologies be more than verbal. Let them be acts of service. I'm not saying that you don't need to verbally apologize because some of you have, have had these attitudes in you that have damaged people around you that the first thing you need to do is stand in front of an individual and say, I am deeply, deeply sorry that I've done this to you. And to prove it to you, this apology is not going to be the last thing I do. It will be the first thing I do. And that my actions and activities from now on is going to demonstrate a different attitude to you because Jesus is at work with me to help me. And so my forgiveness and my asking your forgiveness is going to be followed by activities that will confirm this to you so that it will be believable. Fifthly, get another person involved as a helper. Scripture says something that, honestly, it's easy to read, but it's a difficult thing to put into practice, and I'll explain it to you in just a minute. It says, confess your sins one to another. And it says to bear one another's burdens. And there are times when we need to get somebody involved in our life who is spiritually farther along than we are. I think in every one of our lives, we need somebody who is ahead of us in the journey that can mentor us, somebody who's with us in the journey that's at the same place we are, and somebody who's behind us in the journey that we can bring along. We need all three of those people in our life. But particularly in this instance, we need people that we can unbear our soul to that we know and love and trust enough that they will not damage us with the information, but will help us to grow with the information. That takes time. Those friendships are the ones that you self-reveal in stages to see how trustworthy that individual will be. It takes time, and when you have people like that in your life, don't let them go, but keep investing in that. At the same time, you look for others whom you can be trustworthy to so that you can be their helper to pray. It's a beneficial relationship that can be authentic, and it's very freeing in our lives. It's freeing to have people in your life that know you, 
that you know that when they come to you and say, man, I'm recognizing some things in your attitude that, that that's not normally you, and I don't know what the cause is, but let's just talk about that, that you know love you enough that they're not trying to condemn you, they're trying to build you up. And we need that kind of honesty from individuals, so get another person involved as helper. Worship team, if you'd please make your way here. And the last one is get back up when you fail. Notice I did not say if you fail. I said when you fail. Because, folks, we're all going to fail. We are incapable of perfection. In fact, I love watching little kids as they're learning to walk. There's a reason why those diapers are so thick. Because <laughs> they fall right on their diaper a lot. But you know what? When they fall down, you walk over and you grab them by the hands and you lift them back up. And it takes a little while, but they begin to develop the skills to walk without falling until we get old. Then we start falling again. Why should we be less patient with each other than we are with our children? That we could just give each other the grace that when you fail, not to judge them, but say, hey, let me come alongside of you. I think this is one of the areas that the church really needs to work with. Rather than kicking each other when we're down. Or when something goes wrong, having everybody else go, I knew they were incapable of that. I didn't believe that we would come alongside and lift up and build up and speak into and say, you know what, I'm not going to let you stay down in the mud. I'm going to help you out. Let's clean up. Let's take this journey again. And when they fall again or when you fall again, somebody else come alongside. We, we need to have that type of grace because Jesus did it all the time. And he says, that's what I want to transform your nature into so that the bad attitudes that I have confronted, I can be at work within you so that you can reflect me better in this world. 